Let's pray. Father, you are holy, and we come here tonight in worship of you and to hear from your word. So I pray that your spirit will be at work among us here tonight, that you will open our eyes to the truth of your scripture. And I pray that you'll be with me, that you'll um, equip me to speak your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year 739 BC, a catastrophic event shook a nation to its core. This event was the death of a king. The king's name was Uzziah, and the nation was Israel. So who was Uzziah, you ask? Well, he was a great king, a godly king. And the glory of his kingdom rivaled that of both King David and Solomon. But when his kingdom grew strong, the Bible tells us he grew proud to his destruction. And he presumed to take it upon himself to offer incense upon the altar, something that was only reserved for a priest to do. So the Lord struck him with leprosy, and he lived the latter part of his life in shame until he died. So, yet despite of... Um, Despite Uzziah's flaws, he was mostly a good king. And upon his passing, it was this that he was remembered for. So while the death of this king was weighing heavy on the hearts of the Israelites, Isaiah writes in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. If, depending on your translation here, you'll see that Lord is spelt capital L, little o, little r, little d. Whereas elsewhere in your Bibles, you might find that the word Lord is spelt capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's because what the translators are trying to do here is show us a difference between the Hebrew word here for our word Lord. For when we see the word Lord in all capital letters, it stands for Yahweh, the great I am, without beginning or end, who just is. But here in verse 1, where we see the word Lord with little l, little o, little r, little d, it's not referring to the name of God, but in fact a title for him. And that title is Adonai, or Sovereign One. And we encounter this word Adonai throughout the Scripture, particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. This is the very psalm that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus identifies Adonai as being the Messiah. And then when we arrive in the New Testament, we see the name often used for Jesus is Kyrios, a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. So what we're seeing here is in Isaiah 6, is not a theophany, an encounter with God, but in fact a Christophany, an encounter with Jesus. Jesus is our Adonai, our sovereign one. And the Apostle John confirms this in John chapter 12, where he quotes Isaiah 6, and he says that this is referring to Jesus. So we see here in our passage today, Jesus, before he took on flesh and became a man, Jesus the eternal God, one with the Father and the Spirit, 
without beginning or end, who was there at creation when God said, let us create. He was the one whom Abraham rejoiced to see, the one of whom Jude says, saved a people out of Egypt and afterward destroyed those who didn't believe. And so this Jesus is whom, this is Jesus whom Messiah says he saw sitting high and lifted up. In a great contrast between Uzziah, who was a great king, yet he had his flaws and he eventually died. As I saw Jesus, the eternal king, sitting on a throne high and lifted up. In a state of exaltation, looking down on the earthly kings in their thrones. And then it says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. When Essie and I got married, she wore the most stunning dress I have ever seen. And as she walked down the church aisle, the train of her dress trailed behind her. You see, when a garment has a train, it's symbolic of the wearer's glory. In a wedding, it's a testament of the bride's magnificence and her beauty. For a king or a queen, it's a testament to their power and their greatness. For the size of their train, no matter how big, it always came to an end. But Jesus' train knows no end. It filled every inch of the heavenly temple. For the magnificence and the status of Christ has no end. And then our passage says that the seraphim flew above him. It said that each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. You know, God creates his creatures so that they can survive in the environment they live in. To the fish, he gives gills that they can breathe and fins that they can swim. To us humans, he gives us lungs that we can breathe and legs so that we can walk. He gave us these attributes because our environment requires it. And so to the seraphim, a kind of angel, he gave them six wings because their environment, the heavenly throne room of an almighty God, requires it. And it says with two, he covered his face. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that God's glory is so radiant that the created cannot look upon it and live. In fact, when Moses went to speak to the Lord, his face would shine so bright just from, looking, uh, just from speaking to the Lord. It was so bright that he would have to wear a veil when he in turn spoke to the Israelites because his face would shine from speaking with God. And when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, it says that there was a great light, brighter than the noonday sun. Have you ever tried looking at the sun? Don't do it, because you can permanently damage your eyes. Yet this bright light that Paul saw was brighter than the noonday sun, and Paul was blinded by it. Such is the glory of Christ. So great is the blinding glory of Christ that he gave to the seraphim two wings with which to shield their face 
from the radiance of his holiness. Their environment required it. And then our passage says, with two, feet, two wings they covered their feet. When, Moses appeared, uh, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he was told to take off his sandals, for where he was standing was holy ground. He was to take off his sandals as an act of respect and humility. For feet are used to travel. They're symbolic of a servant, one who is sent. But also in ancient times they were considered filthy. Since the mode of travel was often by barefoot or open sandals. So their feet would become really dirty and dusty. And to wash someone's feet as Jesus did was considered a lowly chore, a great sign of humility. And so in the presence of an almighty God, the seraphim would cover their feet. They were servants, and out of respect to their great king, they would cover their feet with an ancient symbol of humility. And then it says, with two, he flew. They weren't sitting, they were flying, perhaps hovering by the throne of God, for they were ready to do his will. But it's not so much the description of the seraphim, which is important here, but what they said. And they said to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the English language, we have literary devices to draw attention to something, to show that it is important. We might capitalize something. We might put it in bold or um, underline it. Well, the Hebrews, they also had their devices. And one of their ways to show that something is important was to repeat it. Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And what he was saying here is, what I'm about to say is really important, so you better listen. And in Galatians, Paul says that if anyone preaches another gospel other than the one that we have received, let him be accursed. And then he repeats himself and he says, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Jesus, our Adonai, he is at the center of the gospel. And to dishonor him and his sacrifice by preaching a false gospel is so abhorrent that the curse associated with it is um, declared twice. The glory of Christ is not something to be tempered with. And so through repetition, the Hebrew language will show that something is important. But they would usually only repeat something twice. But when we look at our passage in Isaiah, it doesn't say holy. It doesn't say holy, holy. It says holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Guys, I cannot understate the significance of this. The scripture never says that God is love, love. It never says that he is grace, grace, or wrath, wrath. Yet when it speaks of the holiness of God, it cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The word holy means he has complete freedom. He is separate from sin. He is separate, he is separate, he is separate from sin. And we who sin need to remember this. 
Guys, I pray for you. I pray for the church in Australia. I pray for our nation. Because I fear that a great darkness is falling upon us where we have forgotten the holiness of the Lord. You see, in our sin, we hate the light. We flee the light because we want to stay where we feel comfortable about ourselves. That's why no one ever has an issue when all you talk about is love. The love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Make no mistake, these things are amazing. They are beautiful beyond comprehension. But they're only a part of the picture. Because it's the holiness and the justice of God that validate the depth of His love and His mercy. So if we're not prepared to be made uncomfortable by being exposed by the light of God's holiness and being condemned by His justice, we won't truly value the depth of His love. And so as the very foundations of the temple shook at the power of the voice of the Lord, as it was filled with smoke and the train of his robe. So fearful was the sight that Isaiah, upon being exposed to the holiness of the Lord, cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. Or as some translations have it, Woe is me, for I am undone. Isaiah was a prophet, and you could say by worldly standards, he was probably a good man. But when confronted with the radiant light of the glory and the holiness of Christ, he was exposed. He saw his creatureliness before an almighty, all-powerful God. But more than that, he saw the filth of his sin next to the perfection of Christ. And so he cried out, For I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, woe is me, for I have a dirty mouth. He was a prophet. His job was to proclaim the word of God. Yet as I realized that his lips were tainted with the filth of sin and not fit to proclaim the holy word of God. And as he stood in the presence of the most high God, All his innermost being would have been to cry out the praise of the Lord with the seraphim. Yet instead he was left in agony. For he along with his people were unfit to even speak the praise of the Lord with their sinful mouth. Such is his holiness. And as I was preparing this message, I was struck by my inadequacy to proclaim this message tonight. For I am a man with a filthy mouth. I am tainted with sin. Leaders, we must be so careful as we handle the word of God. Psalm 138 says that God's word is exalted above all things. So we must handle it with the utmost of reverence. It's not something to be proclaimed flippantly or half-heartedly, but with the utmost respect for the words of a holy king who died to save you. John Knox, a great Presbyterian preacher from the 16th century, once said, I never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. John Knox had a sense 
of the holiness of God that Isaiah saw. And he trembled. So Isaiah continues and he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Surely he would have died, for no one could, have, could see the Lord of hosts and live. Exodus 33 verse 20. Yet though Isaiah truly did see the Lord, what he saw was a vision. It was a manifestation of the glory of God in human form. As by Christ appearing in human form, as I could see the in, in human form that Isaiah could see, the full state of his unlimited glory was veiled. Yet so great is Christ's glory that even in a veiled state, it caused Isaiah to cry out in agony at realizing who he was before a holy God. And then it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. In his agony of being exposed to the light of Christ's holiness, Isaiah is driven to repentance. But that repentance had a price tag attached. God dealt with that filthy mouth of his, and he did it by placing a burning coal upon his lips, one of the most sensitive parts of your body, not to punish him, but to cleanse his lips of their filth, to cauterize them. And then the seraphim said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. This is the work of Christ. The sacrifice on the altar was a symbol of the greater sacrifice to come. Jesus' sacrifice on that cross to take the incredible penalty of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. So by touching Isaiah's lips with his coal from the altar, Isaiah was in fact being touched with the atoning work of Christ. And then notice what happens next. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Whom? Whom shall I send? Notice how the language switches from the singular to the plural. Here we see the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For God does not consult with others. He's not consulting the seraphim. He's not consulting Isaiah. But rather, this is a statement within the Trinity, stated for Isaiah's benefit. And then our passage says that Isaiah said, Isaiah then said, Here I am. Send me. A lot of translations um, translate Isaiah's response as, Here I am. Uh, but other translations also translate it as, Here am I. A slight different wording, but I believe it gives a, a better sense of the original meaning. For what Isaiah isn't doing here is he's not raising his hand going, Here I am over here, as if to identify his location to God. No. What he's doing is he's going, Here am I. There's this sense here of total surrender. It's going, God, use me as you see fit. I'm your servant. Here am I. That's how people respond when they've been cleansed by Christ. There's a total denial of self where they are willing to be sent wherever Christ will have them go. A willingness to forgo the pursuit of whatever I might want 
and that our life will be guided by one sole purpose, and that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then upon Isaiah offering himself up, it says, go. He doesn't need Isaiah. Jesus is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need anyone to achieve his will. Yet he sends Isaiah. For God uses us to achieve his will for, his, for our benefit, not his. That we might grow through closer to Christ through serving him. And then from verse 9 to the end of the chapter... Isaiah's given a hard message, a message of judgment on his people for their sin. You see, Isaiah needed an encounter with God before he was ready to deliver this message. If he was just told to deliver this message, he might feel like God is unjust, like God is a harsh God to do this to his people. But by Christ exposing Isaiah to the radiance of his holiness, by exposing him as what he was, a creature who likes to live in the comfort of darkness in his sin, Isaiah understood that they deserved this decree of judgment because he understood our position as sinners before a holy God. So the whole point of Isaiah 6 is that as we glimpse the holiness of God, our sin will be exposed, calling us to fall on our knees and surrender to Him, to Him who knows no sin. And know this, that if you bend the knee to Christ and repent of your sin, He won't leave you there. Yes, He'll let you feel the agony of your sin. And yes, repentance hurts. But he will cleanse you of your sin. For he has taken the penalty of your sin upon himself, that we might cry out with a seraphim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. And we are created, sinful people, we so often stray from your ways. Father, we repent of our sinfulness. We bend our knee in worship to you, for you are sovereign. You are worthy to receive all glory, honor, and praise. So, Father, I pray that you'll take our lives, transform us into your image, make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.